0: If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of James. If you're a guest with us, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please feel free to take that home. Consider that a gift from us to you. We would love nothing more than for you to take that home so that you might be able to read the Bible and learn more about Jesus Christ, uh, who he is, what he came to do, and how he saves us. So I'd love for you to take one of those, but you can open it up to the book of James. It should be somewhere around page 10-11 in that Bible. And if you're not very familiar with the Bible, the large numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers. We're going to begin reading, even though we're studying James 5, 1-6, through 6, in chapter 4, verse 10, in just a moment. As we continue to see how James has transitioned from... A conversation about humility and the disregarding of the law and the disregarding of God's providence to now a warning to the rich. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Again, in James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time And then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We ask that you would... Write these eternal truths on our hearts if we are in Christ. And Father, for those who are not in Christ, we ask that you would use these words to awaken them to the reality of their need for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would do the good work of redeeming grace. Father, we ask that you would help us in this time together, that we might focus our attention because we know that the enemy would not seek to have us understand or apply your word to our lives. I pray, Father, for help myself. I pray that you would guard my mouth. Lord, we ask that as we study the Scripture, that we would constantly be reminded of the responsibility before us. There is not only opportunity to gather today, to learn together, to hear your word read, all of which are wonderful and precious privileges and opportunities that not all of our brothers and sisters around the world enjoy. But, Father, there is also the responsibility to apply this word, to respond in faith, and to reproduce its teaching for the good of other people as we're learning even the Academy Hour, so that we might do spiritual good to others, so that we might help other people follow Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us do just that, that we would learn to help other people follow Jesus, that we would learn so that other people who do not know Jesus would learn that they can follow Jesus. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In his book, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt tells the story of the, of the day William McNeil was drafted into the U.S. Army. Afterwards, in September 1941, McNeil spent several years and months in basic training. Several months, not years. It wasn't that bad. Several months in basic training, which consisted mostly of marching around the drill field in close formation with a few dozen other men. At first, McNeil thought that the marching was just one way for them to pass the time because their base had no weapons for which which for them to train. But after a few weeks, when his unit began to synchronize well, he began to experience an altered state of consciousness. He describes it this way. Words are inadequate to describe the emotion produced by the prolonged movement in unison that drilling involved. A sense of pervasive well-being is what I recall. More specifically, a strange sense of personal enlargement, a sort of swelling out, becoming bigger than life thanks to participation and collective ritual. McNeil went on to fight in World War II and later became a distinguished historian. His research led him to a conclusion that the key innovation of the Greeks, the Romans, and later European armies was the, was the sort of synchronous drilling and marching the army had forced him to do years before. He hypothesized That the process of muscular bonding, moving together in line, was a mechanism that evolved long before the beginning of recorded history for shutting down the self and creating a temporary superorganism, as he described it. Muscular bonding enabled people to forget themselves, to learn how to trust each other, to function as a unit, and then crush less cohesive groups. To support the thesis, McNeil studied accounts of men in battle and found that men risk their lives not so much for the country that they love or for the ideals that their country imbibes, as for their comrades in arms. He quoted one veteran who gave an example of what he was saying when the I becomes we this way. Many veterans who are honest with themselves will admit, I believe, that the experience of communal effort in battle has been the high point of their lives. Their I passes insensibly into the we. The my becomes our. Individual fate loses its central importance. I believe that that is nothing less than the assurance of immortality that makes self-sacrifice at these moments so relatively easy. I may fail, but I do not die, for that which is real in me goes forward and lives on in the comrades for whom I gave up my life. Writing to a group of persecuted Christians, James is trying to draw their attention away from the I to remind them of the we. James knows that there is a tremendous danger to focus on the self, specifically when we are under persecution, experiencing social alienation, when we have been ostracized from everything that is familiar, when we are experiencing pain and hardship. So he calls these people to not focus on the self, but to lose themselves in the we of Christianity in the Christian communities that they inhabit. So tremendous is the danger, in fact, James issues a warning to these Christians to doubt their own motivations regarding their own wealth as he calls believers to let go of their eye and to dissolve into the we of the church so that the my becomes our as they continue to learn how to walk humbly with God together. Because James has learned it is really hard to be rich and lowly at the same time. And our use of money and the life of self-pleasing are never really far apart at all. You may be just above the poverty line and already thinking that this sermon and this service are not really relevant to you. But, friends, the very fact that you are here means that you are wealthier than the majority of people throughout the rest of the world. And James tells us worldly wealth is an area of high risk in the battle to walk humbly with God. Misery because there is a misery because of how they gained their wealth, how they used their wealth, and how that wealth has shamed their hearts. I want you to notice first with me, though, the misery of misers. Look with me in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James, again, signals a new section. You see it in chapter 4, verse 13, come now. And again in chapter 5, verse 1, come now. But not an entirely different logic. Last week we saw how everything from 4.11 onward flows out of this exhortation in chapter 4, verse 10, to humble yourselves. But humility for James is not simply learning how to think of ourselves less, is it? James says that we're actually to humble ourselves in relation to the law. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And then we're to humble ourselves in relation to the future. We studied it last week. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. We are to humble ourselves in relation to our riches. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We are to humble ourselves in relation to our suffering. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. We are to humble ourselves in relation to our oaths. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Everything from chapter 4, verse 11, all the way to chapter 5, verse 13, is actually an implication of all of the humility flowing out of verse 10 of chapter 4. And James has taught us that God gives grace to humble people, which is why he warns, verse 1, the rich, and says, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, unless we are reading very carefully, our first instinct will be to assume that James is actually addressing people outside of the church... Not the wicked wealthy who are within the church. We immediately throw up a defense and think, James cannot be writing to Christians. This does not apply to me. He's got to be speaking to other people. But we know that that would be wrong. We know that that would be wrong since we know that James has been writing to, chapter 1, verse 1, the 12 tribes in the dispersions. Christians who are gathering in congregations outside of Jerusalem, Christians James is trying to show that they are the true heir of Jesus' teaching which will become evident in their lives by their distinct ethic. An ethic that James is seeking to teach as he corrects believers in the context of the church. Believers who are being misguided because of all of the ostracization and pain that they are experiencing. So his denunciation, weep and howl, announces doom before the believers. It's not simply a bad idea to use your riches wrongly. You will weep and you will howl, literally, miseries, as a way to call humble repentance, call for humble repentance as he exhorts these Christians to mend their ways while there is still opportunity for them to do so, since verse 1, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ is at hand. It is a theme that is dominating the passage. I wonder if you saw it. I want you to look with me in chapter 5, verse 1. And if you like to underline in your Bible, you see it There coming upon you the future miseries that james is speaking about are near they're not distant miseries they're not so far off that they don't need to mend their lives the future miseries are here now and you see it again in chapter 5 verse 4 the last days the final days that they are worried about are here now we're not waiting for the final days we are living in the midst of the final days And because we are living in the midst of the final days, we need to change our ways now. Chapter 5, verse 7. The coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. We might think that Jesus is far off. And we might be so confused about that that we're not changing the way that we're living now. But he tells us and reminds us, friends, Jesus is coming back. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 8. The coming of the Lord is at hand. It's not just that Jesus is coming back. It's that Jesus is coming back and so we need to live our lives as if Jesus is coming back soon. Friend, I wonder, are you living your life as if Jesus is coming back soon? Are you living your life as if you are aware and prepared for the return of Christ? We see it again in chapter 5, verse 9. He is standing at the door, the position of being ready. It could be right now before the end of the sermon, so get ready. James' exhortation to humility in relation to wealth is actually anchored in the imminent return of Christ, just like his discussion on suffering that we'll look at next week. These Christians don't know the future. We learned that together last week in chapter 4, verses 13 13 through 17. They know that they don't know the future now, and they know that they cannot control the future. So James wants these believers and us to know that what is before them, even though there is a lot of unknown, is the imminent return of Christ. You can't bank on tomorrow. But you can bank on the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. So get ready. Friends, he is coming back. That is one of the primary truths that is being passed along by James in this passage. And by passing that truth along, James is forcing us to ask a very simple question. How will you live in light of Christ's imminent return? How are you living in light of Christ's imminent return? Friends, what would those who know you best say about the way that you're living your life? Are you living your life as if you're prepared for Christ's return? Or are you living your life like the people we studied last week in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17? A functional atheist. As if it's not going to ever happen. As if there's nothing to think about in regards to the future. As if Jesus is not coming back. James forces us to ask this very simple question. And he teaches us, when you can't control your future... And you cannot even control your own life. When the shelf life of your wealth is brief, how will you live? Fellow members of this church, what would the unbelieving society around us say about the way that we are living together as a congregation? Are we living as if the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back? The Bible teaches us not only that Jesus came. The Bible everywhere is teaching us, especially in the New Testament, especially in the epistles all the way through the book of Revelation, that he is coming back. It's not only that he came, it's that he is coming. And he is coming sooner than we might think. Does that change anything about the way that you are living your life today? Will that change anything about the way that you're living your life when you leave this room? Does that change anything about the way that you're saying, where shall I be? Does that change anything about the way that you've prepared for this upcoming week? And James wants to know, does that change anything about the way that you use your wealth? We gather it all and we keep it close. Because we're living as if he's not coming back. James knows that people who are suffering under threat of pain will focus on the self and be short-sighted. And they will try to protect themselves by keeping everything close. And they will forget one very important truth. That Jesus is coming back. And everything that they hold so close and so tight-fisted will be gone in an instant. Does it repurpose the way that you live your life and use your wealth? James says that it should because, verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. He, James tells us, in chapter 4, verse 12, is the only lawgiver and judge who is actually able to save and to destroy. James is making a cohesive argument for us here. That judge is the one who is able to save us. And that judge is the one who is able to destroy us. Are you prepared to stand before him? Believer, the only hope that we have in life and death is that when we stand before that judge, we will be acquitted of all of our sins and all of our crimes because of our faith in Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have to stand before that judge is that Jesus Christ died on our behalf. So when we come before him, we're not coming with wealth. We're not coming with the certainty of knowledge of the future. We're not coming with accomplishments. We're coming with open hands that are drenched in the precious blood of Christ, and we stand before him saying, guilty though I am, pardon me because of Christ. An unbeliever, if you are here, be warned, as James is warning everyone here, people even in the church, that that judge... Though he is merciful to pardon those who deserve death, that judge will destroy all who are unworthy of everlasting life. That that judge will bring punishment and pain. And that judge is not as far off as you might think. You live your life as if every day is guaranteed. But James has already rattled everything firm underneath our feet and says, you don't even know what today will bring. You can't control your life. You're not even sure if there will be a tomorrow. You can't even guarantee that you'll make it to the end of the day. And when that day comes, and that hour comes, are you ready to stand before the judge? In that moment, will you stand before the judge confident because of how much you have amassed for yourself and all of the things that you have accomplished to impress yourself and other people? Or will you stand before that judge with empty hands Drenched in the precious blood of Christ. James, as he's speaking to these people and warning them, is reminding them of the uncertainty of the future and the uncertainty of all of their wealth. And in so doing, James is actually trying to prepare them for one particular moment. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're an unbeliever, you can be prepared for that moment. We've been singing about it. We've been confessing truth about it. We've read scriptures about it. We're proclaiming it to you right now that the only way to be prepared for that moment is to turn away from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. To uh, plead his substitutionary death and his death-defying resurrection on your behalf. Friend, if you want to do that, you can do that right now and be prepared to stand before the judge. If you have questions about how to do that, we would love to talk to you and open the Bible with you so that you might learn more about Jesus Christ. Find me at that tunnel following the service. Find one of the elders at one of the other doorways. We would love to speak to you. But believer, these truths are not only for the unbeliever, are they? James is writing to a church, a room filled with people just like this. And he is telling them, be ready. He is coming. Live for that moment. Do not live With the uncertainty of your plans, do not cling to your wealth, but be ready for his return. James is trying to call all of these people to pay attention to the lawgiver and judge. And he says that this lawgiver and judge will save and destroy. He will save all who have faith in him. And he will destroy all those who live their lives as if they're above the law, as if they're in control of their future, as if the way that they are using their wealth, it does not matter so James tells the wicked wealthy in the church how they should live. They should, verse 1, weep and howl. The men and women the world tells us to be like, rich. The men and women that we actually, if we're honest in this room today, really want to be like, rich. The men and women that we think, and the world tells us, are happy and tear-free, James says are not. They will weep and they will howl. Everything that we want, everything that they have, will be gone in a moment. Why? Because, verse 1, all they have amassed with their exorbitant riches and their exotic vacations and their mahogany furniture and their plush apartments and all of the wealth that they have hoarded for themselves, and there's not anything wrong with vacations or mahogany or apartments, but all that they've amassed for themselves is a pile of miseries. Miseries that are coming sooner than they think. They have been so short-sighted in the way that they have lived their lives, haven't they? So following the Old Testament pattern of a prophet, James warns any who might be tempted to do the same. Don't just gather for yourself and hoard for yourself and keep for yourself and live without respect to God for the future. Don't live as if you're above the law. You need to live as if he is coming back sooner than you think. And he tells all of the wicked wealthy and all of the believers in this church who might be prone to use their wealth in wicked ways to weep and to how. Why? Because worldly wealth is an area of high risk. In the battle to walk humbly with God. And our community knows that as well as any community in our country. We have so much. And seem to have no needs. We have big things. And opulent things. And many things. And we can go places. And use them to do other things. We have no need of God. Or repentance. Or faith. Or dependence. Or trust. You want to know the thing that I think is the greatest problem for our community? Is we live in a community filled with people who don't think that they have any problems. They don't believe they're sinners because they don't have any problems. And they think all the sinful people live in West Philadelphia because they have problems. They can't get their life together. But James says, your life is not together. Their life is not together. James tells all of these people, worldly wealth is a deception. It is an area of high risk that gives us a feeling of security. I have it all together. And it is a problem in the battle to walk humbly with God. The misery of misers, notice second, misery because of the way they used their wealth. Look in verse 2. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire, You have laid up treasure in the last days. James begins offering specific reasons as to why the rich are viewed as wicked and therefore rightly condemned in this passage. He tells the wicked wealthy that they should weep and howl when they consider the brevity of everything that they have hoarded. Their riches have, verses 2 and 3, rotted. Their garments are moth-eaten. Their gold and silver have corroded. Now, the more sciencey among us, like my wife, know that metals such as gold do not corrode visibly because they are unaffected by oxygen in most acids and are more stable than many of their compounds such as oxides and sulfides. So gold in particular is one of the least reactive elements to the periodic table and it doesn't react to oxygen and never rusts or corrodes. And you would not believe how much research I had to do to get that sentence together. Because <laughs> that is not my skill set. But the lack of chemical reactivity to gold is not the point. That's the point of everything I just said. The lack of chemical reactivity to gold is one of the reasons that it was called a noble metal. It's one of the reasons that it's valued in our world and in the ancient world. But James uses an unexpected image of gold corroding to startle us. He's not trying to teach us something to be true that we know to be false. The Bible never does that. The Bible does not tell us something true that we know to be false or something false that we know to be true. James is actually trying to get our attention, and he's trying to teach us that the brevity of wealth is passing away. And everything that we hold so closely and valuable will fade. He's he's using this teaching to hammer on the brevity of wealth. It is rotted. It is moth-eaten. It is... He's moving beyond just reporting of the impossible, but to denounce all of their wealth. It is short-lived. It doesn't last. Throughout verses 2-3, through James is asserting that the wicked person's riches and their clothing and their precious metals have all deteriorated and now sit in ruin. How can this be? Especially when the early Christians who were reading James' letter out loud and this condemnation could see people walking around in fine clothing and having shining jewelry all on them. James is speaking in a metaphorical fashion for the people. And in so doing, he says the wicked person's riches are rotted in the sense that they've been hoarded instead of being used for the good of other people. After all, when we just think of what he said, crops harvested and traded and eaten don't rot, do they? But they rot when they're hoarded to no purpose. And it's the clothes that are worn regularly that never get moth-eaten. But the ones that you leave sitting for the rest of the year... And they sit month after month after month, are moth-eaten, and they're hoarded to no purpose. And money invested for a purpose doesn't corrode. Just money that is amassed for show, hoarded for no purpose, and it yields no profitable return. Once again, the parable of the rich fool is fitting. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, the parable that we read last week, is just as true as we think about this teaching James gives us on money, especially now that we'll read on the front and the back side of the passage and see its context. Chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. It is not rich toward God. Friends, only the hoarded An unused treasure of our life rots and gets moth-eaten and corrodes. Some of you have more now than you've ever had in your entire life. But comparatively speaking, you give less than you ever have in the entirety of your life. God, James teaches us, does not entrust all of that to you so that you might gather all of your resources and hoard them and admire them and use them for yourself only and possess them to yield no return. Decay of hoarded wealth might not be currently visible to you any more than it might have been visible to these people. It might be invisible to the naked eye, but on the day of judgment, James says, its misuse and its abuse, its hoarding and its amassing will actually be an abuse that testifies against us. It's, verse 3, corrosion will be evidence. It will be, testimony against you and it will eat your flesh like fire not only will it be a testimony against you but it will be a painful testimony against you that you have kept for yourself to use on yourself so that you might have to the exclusion of others and for the advancement of god's kingdom the building of his church and the proclamation of the gospel In the court of God's judgment, the pile of hoarded wealth is, so to speak, actually a bonfire of evidence that we must face in the presence of a just God. And the wicked wealthy's culpability, James says, is increased because God has spoken graciously and climactically in the sending of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 2, the Lord of glory, who is coming again. He says... You have laid up your treasure in the last days. It's as if James is mockingly asking by that phrase, were you planning on living on earth forever? You've laid up treasure for the last days. You have certainly lived your life as if you are sure that you will live forever or longer than you might. But friend, your wealth won't save you. You've laid up treasure. You've laid it up for the last days in the way that you've used it. And all of that hoarding, And all of that amassing and all of that tight fisted grip will be evidence and testimony against you. Friends, James says that if you don't use your wealth in love of God and love of neighbor, it will be evidence against you in the hands of a prosecution before the Holy God. And hoarding, James teaches us, just like Jesus teaches us, is a denial of proper use, it is a denial of true trust, and it is a denial of godly expectancy. Hear these words from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And they sound a lot like James, don't they? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I distinctly remember the first time in my life that I held a $100 bill. I was around 10 years of age. A family member had been making up for a lot of missed birthdays and missed holidays and sent me a card. And I'm sure that the letter was very nice, but I honestly don't remember a thing from it because I was holding the central portion of of the card. I was focused on the money. It was $100. It was more money than I had ever seen in my life at that point, and it was way more than my parents had ever let me hold. So much more money, I remember thinking of all the things that I would do in my life because of this money. I'd buy a car, and I'd go on vacation, and I'd be able to attend college, and I'd purchase a home. Since I could not envision of ever running out of $100. And I'm positive that that $100 made it through one trip to Walmart with my mom and dad. And I now know that I can barely fill my SUV with gas for $100. But that's not the point. Something was awakened in me that day. Something that has been awakened in all of us. This need to make money so that we can have more of it. And we spend so much of our life trying to earn it and get it. Money that we actually leave on our last day. Since 2019, states have accumulated over $20 billion in inheritance taxes and an additional $42 billion in unclaimed property, some, but not all, from assets of the recently deceased. David Koch's death alone meant a $4 billion payday for New York State. Now, I appreciate the tremendous good that money can do. And James does not say it's sinful to be wealthy, or it's sinful to have money, or it's wrong to have money. But should Christians desire wealth and money? Or is it a snare? James says it is a snare. If you are talented and gifted for a lucrative job, desire to be faithful with the wealth that you have. May the Lord give you wisdom and discernment in using it. But know this. Being good at earning money does not mean that you're good at giving it away. Being good at building an income for yourself does not mean that you know how to use an income for the good of other people. Worldly wealth is an area of high risk in the battle to walk humbly with God. The misery of misers, misery because of the way that they used their wealth. Notice third, misery because of the way they gained their wealth. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James homes in on one particular economic abuse for the wicked wealthy. They deserve God's coming judgment because they have been defrauding their employees. In referring to these day laborers in this agricultural context, James gives a further incidental evidence to support everything that he's doing right now. And he describes these laborers as those who are mowing their fields. Now, it's hard for us to get this sense because in our modern context, when we say someone's mowing the fields, it refers almost exclusively to the cutting of grass with machinery. But in that time period, it undoubtedly meant the cutting and the reaping of standing grain. James is not condemning business owners who needed people to reap their standing grain. But he does condemn the economic mistreatment of workers by fraud. And we get the picture of what James is highlighting for us here as we think of the ancient world, people who literally lived day to day so that they could feed the mouths in their home day by day. And one can imagine an ancient landowner who agrees with a worker to pay him a fair wage coming up at the end of the day saying, "Eh, it was different than I thought it would be, and he gives him something less. Or perhaps how he might induce a tenant farmer to settle on his land and to promise him a fair treatment... And after settling on that land and promising him a fair treatment, when relocation would be difficult for the person, he seeks to squeeze everything out of his life and never makes it fair. Common agricultural laborers would have been at a huge disadvantage, and they would have essentially had no recourse. And James is encouraging these people, expecting that there would be the wealthy and the poor in the congregation together hearing this letter. He's encouraging them to know that all of these injustices are known about. And God will settle all of the accounts fairly, even if they don't. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Notice how he switches the metaphor a little bit. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James actually personifies defrauded wages as witness crying out to the Lord of hosts against the rich. The day is coming and there is further testimony against you. You have done this immorally and wrong. And though this testimony may seem to fall on deaf ears in the face of ongoing injustice, not so, says James, shifting the image He highlights for us the cries of these wages to actually the cries of the defrauded harvesters. And he reassures these readers that God hears. He's paying very careful attention. It has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God sees and God hears. And he's paying careful attention to all of the details of everybody's lives. And nobody's getting away with anything. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Friend, I wonder when you cheat on your taxes if you think that you're getting away with it because God does not immediately strike you dead. And I wonder if you think that when you defraud other people and don't give them what they honestly deserve by either not paying them back when you've promised to pay them back or not giving someone a fair wage when you're the employer and you should give them a fair wage if you think you're getting away with it Because God has not opened up the ground and swallowed you whole. James says, God sees and God hears. In Christian church in particular, do not defraud anyone and think that you're getting away with it. Honesty is what is required of the people of God, even at great cost to themselves. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You might not think it's fair, but it is what it is. The title Lord of Hosts refers to God as powerful. God's not just watching, He is all powerful. He is the commander of the Lord's armies, and He will judge injustice. James reminds defrauded workers that the Almighty and just ruler of the universe is aware of their economic exploitation. And he tells them, even though they're asking, what can powerless laborers do against an all-powerful employer or government? And even though the answer is nothing in particular, he says that they can be sure that their situation has reached the ears of the highest court of all. There is an all-powerful Lord who reigns supreme. He sits as judge on high. He will deal with every oppressor, every thief, everyone who is keeping back for himself, The all-sufficient God will attend to all of the needs of his people in due time and will give them everything that they deserve. So they need not fear. They just need to wait patiently because the Lord is coming sooner than they think. And when he does, he will intervene on their behalf. If you're the person defrauding other people, then that should be a warning to you. And if you're the person being defrauded or taken advantage of, this is to be a comfort and encouragement to you God will make all wrong things right. And friends, I say that knowing that it often does not feel like that. And it takes longer than you wish. But the reason that we live as if God is not governing all of the future, or the reason we live this way with our wealth is because we are not confident that he is coming back. We're not trusting in that. So James reminds us and he redirects our gaze. He says, trust. He is coming back. You can't control it, but he is coming back and he will make all wrong things right. James confronts the wicked wealthy. They have kept back daily cash flow when payment was needed because they loved money more than they loved God, and they loved money more than they loved their neighbors. Friends, I wonder if that describes you, that you love your money more than you love God, and that's evidenced by the fact that you love your money more than you love your neighbors. James wades into this economic injustice in verse 4. And without discussing specifics of what that looks like today or how we might go about fixing it, he makes it very clear that God would define harm and injustice more broadly than simply bodily, physical harm. And the downsides to hoarding earthly treasures, one of our members reminded me this week, for ourselves, and for the fraudulent acquisition of wealth, is not simply limited to being short-sighted and naive. Not only are you gathering immorally excess goods that are worthless in light of eternity, but you are depriving them from other people who need them here and now. Which is why God gives them to the church so that the church might steward them together for the good of other people. Because worldly wealth, James tells us, is an area of high risk in the battle to walk humbly with God. The misery of misers, misery because of the way that they used their wealth, misery because of the way they gained their wealth. Notice fourth, misery because of the way Their wealth shaped their hearts. Look with me again in verses 5 through 6. You lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The picture is incredibly vivid for James. James condemns the rich who have enjoyed their material prosperity without regard to whether they have rightfully acquired it Or if they have any obligation to share it with other people. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. It seems that they've gotten away with it. Just like we read in Psalm 73 earlier. We look out and what do we see? We see the wicked seeming to get away with it. They have and they get away with it. They get to do and no one gives them a hard time. And then what does the psalmist say? And then I considered their end. I remembered. It doesn't look that way now, but what is before them. James says the exact same thing. You've lived on the earth in luxury. You have abundance. You have more than you need. You're able to have extra. You're able to plan for tomorrow, and next month, and next year. But you've been doing it in a way that's self-indulgent. In luxury and self-indulgence, the wicked are like cattle ravenously eating more than their share of the grain, not aware that they're making not only themselves fattened, but they are actually preparing themselves as fattened for the coming slaughter. And they will be rightly condemned at the final judgment. Verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. James ends this part of his letter with stark words of condemnation for the wicked wealthy. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James speaks in a generic category of righteous people here. He does not resist you and he cannot resist you. And even though some detect here a reference to Jesus' death, it's more likely that James is speaking in this generic way so he can warn the wicked wealthy. They might not actually be cutting the throats of the poor, but depriving them of proper wages or their ability to pay for their daily food. They're actually metaphorically murdering all of those people. Murdering them because they believed, like so many others and like so many of us, that I deserve every creature comfort that my money can buy me. And then I look at my neighbor and I say, take care of yourself. And an attitude like that, James says, murders. And make no mistake, friends, poverty murders. You don't think that poverty murders? Walk around downtown for a day. Go into one of the big cities around here. Or walk to the other side of the borough that doesn't really look like this side of the borough. And you'll see that poverty kills It murders, and it proves unbelief. Just flip over to chapter 2, verse 14. Same book, same letter. James writes to the same people. An overlapping theme. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Now, what is the example that James immediately gives? I have faith, but I don't have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that faith? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith that refuses to be generous is not faith. Faith that hoards is not faith. Faith that is fraudulently acquiring money is not faith. Faith that says, I love God, but does not love the neighbor, is not faith. Faith without works, James says, is dead. And it will be proven to be dead, specifically when the Lord returns. Friends, you're not going to live forever. You might not make it to the end of the day, and you might not see tomorrow. So let me ask you, Are you planning for your eternity as as carefully as you are your 401k? God doesn't want your money, but he does want your repentance and faith and love. He commands you to repent from your sin. He calls all people to place their faith in Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. He requires that his people trust in Jesus' death-defying resurrection from the grave. Have you trusted in that? Have you turned from your sins and believed in those eternal life realities? Does your life evidence that? James would say in the way that you steward your money. If not, friend, then James would call you to repent just like we're calling you to repent. And the Bible is very clear about what you need to do. Turn away from your sins and believe in God by amending your life. And the Bible is super clear about why you need to do that. Your sin has actually severed your relationship with God. It's separated you from Him, and it's made it impossible for you to live in the world and actually know God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And your sin has not only severed your relationship with God, your sin will send you to hell. It is the basic storyline of the Bible. People who loved their sin more than they loved God. God made the world good and beautiful and in the garden, Adam and Eve, because they loved sin more than they loved God, turned away from God and believed a lie. I can get away with this. And when they turned away from God and believed a lie, they brought judgment for themselves and judgment for all who would follow in their wake. And just like Adam and Eve, we now live our lives in the same way. I can get away with this. God hasn't actually said it that way. It can't be that big of a deal. Did he really mean, are you sure that he requires that? Even in my relationships, the way that I spend my wealth and how I have this relationship with my boyfriend and how I use my education and all of these areas. Because we're so confused, God being merciful sent his son, the redeemer. We sang about him earlier. He came into the world and he obeyed when we would not obey. And he not only obeyed, but he suffered in, the, in our place. In our place condemned, he stood, the hymn says. He died on the cross for all of the sin and wrath that we deserve. And he raised from the dead to prove to us that not only he's the Savior, but to vindicate himself. And now he promises vindication to all who believe in him. And all who trust in him and trust in that substitutionary death and trust in that vindication, James says, live different lives because of it. Because it's really easy to say, I follow Jesus and never change the way that you live. That was true in the first century and that's true in the 21st century. Gather in a room, sing great hymns, praise with one another, shake hands, stay for an hour afterwards. Go out and live as if none of it ever mattered. That's not a problem for you. That's a problem for everybody everywhere. Friend, if you're an unbeliever here today... We invite you to trust in Christ. We are calling you to repent. But we are calling you to amend the way that you live your life. It must be totally different. And believer, let me ask you. Are you as creative in trying to find ways to give your money away as you are in trying to make your money? One of the ways that you declare independence from your money and your dependence upon God is by giving it away freely. We spend so much of our lives trying to figure out how to make money and how to save money and how to use money on ourselves that we spend very little time on how to give our money away so that it might be a blessing to other people and honor God and be used for the good of others and the advancement of God's kingdom. Let me ask you it this way. What keeps you from spending all of your money on yourself other than the limits of your own income? Have you ever considered that you might not need to buy something not simply because you cannot afford it but because it's bad for your soul. James says, Worldly wealth is an area of high risk in the battle to walk humbly with God. And in so doing, he leads us to a couple applications. First, James 1, 5-6 stands as a fitting reminder of how God seriously values the fair treatment of all people. And one of the ways that he evaluates the fair treatment of all people is how we use our money for the good of other people. Are you using your money for the good of other people? In your home and outside of your home? Second, God cares about the mistreatment of other people and he will hold their oppressors accountable. Friends, do you realize that God will hold you accountable? And are you living your life as if you will be held accountable and God is coming back to do that? Third, we are to remember that the love of money is the root of many evils And it was the love of money that betrayed the Lord Jesus. How much did Judas sell him for? 30 pieces of silver. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the love of money betrayed the Lord Jesus. And the love of money right now will betray our faith in the Lord Jesus. Fourth, prudent uh, saving and, and sinful hoarding are not set in opposition against each other. James does not say, don't save and don't plan. James is saying sinful hoarding is a problem. So we are to amass our wealth so that we might use our wealth, not just for our good, but for the good of other people. Fifth, this teaching confronts us about where our trust is placed. So I'm just going to leave it for you to answer yourself this afternoon, or maybe with one of your friends or in your small groups if you gather in one, or an accountability group. Where is my trust placed? And what does my money teach about that? Six, especially members of our church. One of the ways that you go to war on the love of money and wealth and finances is by giving and tithing in the context of the church. If you're a member of our church, you have covenanted to give faithfully to the church. And there might be unique circumstances that prevent you from giving at all. And if there are those circumstances, find one of the elders. So that we might be able to serve you and help you. But if you're a member of the church, one of the ways that you have covenanted to help build the church and you go to war on the love of money is by faithfully, regularly giving so that you might build something that God willing will last beyond our lifetime. A church that would be a blessing to this community. Should the Lord tarry and give life, our prayer should be that we would give and live in such a way that 100 years from now, somebody else would be standing here and other people would be seated there faithfully declaring the word and ministering the gospel in this community. That's what we're investing in. Just like we stewarded all of that money this past week to invest in 100 pastors who actually impact thousands of people. So all of that food that we bought and all of those things that we did was not simply to make sure they had a nice day, but it was to bless them so that they might be a blessing to others. We are putting an investment in something far-reaching and eternal. When Jonathan Haidt began writing the happiness hypothesis, he believed that happiness came from within, as Buddha or the Stoic philosopher said thousands of years ago. You'll never make the world conform to your wishes, so focus on changing yourself and your desires. But by the time he finished writing, he had changed his mind, and he realized that happiness comes from between. It comes from getting the right relationships between yourselves and others, yourselves and your work, yourselves and something larger than yourself. James, as he's writing to these people, is telling them, you actually have a clear view of how to live humbly when you live together. And you begin to invest in things together, beyond yourself. And one of the ways that we show that we're a part of something larger than ourselves is by using our money to build things bigger than ourselves. So James says how we use our wealth is actually an adjunct to a humble walk with God. He shows us the pits so that we might not fall into them. That's how this passage flows out of chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. One, both of them speak of uncertainty and insecurity. The first part speaks on the uncertainty and the insecurity of the future. And the second part speaks of the uncertainty the insecurity of our riches. You can't count on either of them. So all you can do is depend upon the Lord. You can depend upon the Lord. And James forces us once again to ask a question, as one of our members reminded me. How would you like to reach the end of your life and realize that all of your saving and planning amassed you a pile of rotten garbage? The Lord will provide what we need. And while that doesn't actually excuse us from poor stewardship, it does mean that if we're running hard after building treasure troves for ourselves, we should be warned that all of our lives should be lived trying to build the currency of heaven. As Mark said on Sunday night, nothing has been given to us that God does not want us to give to other people. And if your treasure is in heaven, you'll think about heaven. But if your treasure is on earth, you'll think about earth and live for earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. Father, we pray that you would redirect our eyes and the affections of our hearts That we might show our love for you by the way that we steward what you've entrusted to us for the good of others. Father, I confess, we confess, that we have been far too short-sighted. We've thought about ourselves, our immediate family, all of our immediate needs. And those, those things are very important. You have saved us to be a part of something larger than ourselves. You've not saved a room full of individuals for those who trust in Christ you have placed these individuals in the context of your church so that we might advance the gospel mission together. As not only Pastor Stephen, who's required to do gospel mission with his wife Alexandra, but all of us together, stewarding everything that we have, leveraging everything that you've entrusted so that Jesus Christ might be known to sinners. So that people who are despairing and hurting might be encouraged Father, give us a bigger view of everything that you're doing. And we ask, Father, that we would demonstrate that bigger view by the way that we invest in the kingdom. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.